Right, we are in Mark chapter 2. Now, now the, the, church, the church that I grew up in was probably one of those churches where every single person had their own pew, their own sin. You know what that's like? Yeah? And uh, some, of those, some of those families would guard their pew in the same way that they would protect their own children. And if you happen to inadvertently stray into their seat on any particular Sunday, you had unknowingly committed the unforgivable sin. Now, that wasn't, of course, the only way in which you could fall foul. That wasn't the only way you could fall foul off the religious norm in, in that particular church. See, from, from the age of about six or seven, you were, as a boy, you were expected to wear a shirt, a tie, a suit. If you were a girl, however, a hat was pretty much compulsory. Now, in my mind, I used to look around and I used to, used to think, particularly for the older women, it used to seem to me that the bigger the hat, the better. So they'd come in with these huge hats with flowers and feathers and even bunches of fruit. I know, and I spent many a Sunday morning with my view obscured from the minister, unable to see past because of a certain lady with this ginormous hat that looked more like a small garden than any hat should ever look. And even as a even as a young lad, I could not help but wondering how does this really match up with the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels? Is this really what Christianity is? Is all about is, is there is this what's is this what's going on and, and this afternoon I sort of feel fairly safe from scary hats but maybe one over not not really <laughs> I feel fairly safe from, from 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 scary hats but what I want to do I want to challenge our way of thinking I want to challenge a religious mindset that we can so easily gravitate towards and to do that I want to reveal the type of king that Jesus really is. Because his kingdom cannot and will not ever be contained within a religious framework. But also as we go through these two stories, and we've seen it already over the last couple of weeks, because I hope you've noticed that things are building. The Pharisees, the religious people are getting seriously upset by Jesus and opposition and resentment is building towards him. Let's have a little read. So we're in chapter 2. We are near the end there. And in verse 18. And it says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees and the and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unstrung cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. 
and no one pours out new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, no, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Verse 23 carries on. On one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and as the disciples were walking along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathur, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So as we, we begin to read these two stories, you will amazingly notice that Jesus' disciples, that Jesus' followers, have got a very different lifestyle from that of the Pharisees, who are very serious, very regulated, very regimented, and even that of John's disciples. See, the issue particularly arises over the whole thing about fasting. Now, fasting is very simple. It is going without food. It generally means that you are pretty serious about something. However, we look at these Pharisees, and they, they would fast two times a week. But normally on a Monday and on a Thursday, they would go without food completely. For them, it's about piety, it's about consecration, but they loved people to see them fast. They absolutely wanted, it, for them it was a spectator sport, you know, they want people to come and pat them on the back and think what great people they are, how good, we, we must be so godly because we fast so much. Now for John's disciples, it was a little bit different for them. For, for them, I think their fasting was more about repentance. After all, that's what, that's what John was preaching, that's what he's crying out, he says, he says, repent, turn to God, and be baptised. And John is encouraging people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So now as Jesus steps onto the scene, Jesus, of course, who is the Messiah, what does he do? He's very different. Is he fasting? No, sir. <laughs> he's feasting, he's, he's eating, he's, he's drinking. In fact, to the casual observer looking at Jesus' disciples, they must be thinking that these people are seriously undisciplined. Not a bit wonder, they come and ask him the question, why? Jesus, why are your disciples behaving like that? In answering the question, Jesus throws a counter question back at them. And he says to them, he says, can, can wedding guests mourn? Can they fast during a wedding reception? Now, it's not a trick question. The answer really is as obvious as it sounds. Of course it is. No, 
No wedding guest would ever dream of, of fasting. It's, it's a time of joy, a time of celebration, a time to have a bit of fun, of laughter, of music, of, of festivities. That's what a wedding is all about. I remember in the build-up to our wedding, 19 years ago now, this past in August, and I don't remember for a moment anybody suggesting that we should have a day of fasting on our wedding day. Not even Rachel's dad, who was footing the bill for the expensive hotel, he didn't even hint at it. He may have been thinking it, but he never let on. Instead, we had a wonderful meal in the hotel. Then later on evening, we had a, a hog roast at, our, at Rachel's mum's house. There was so much food and so much drink that nobody left either hungry or thirsty. Why? Because parties, because wedding receptions are just not the time for fasting. So therefore, is Jesus saying that we should not fast? Well, no, I don't think he's saying that. In fact, he goes on a little bit later to say that there is a time comes when it's absolutely appropriate to fast. But while the bridegroom is around, we don't fast. In verse 20, it says, you can find it, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and on that day then it's going to be appropriate to fast. Now it's probably worth mentioning that nowhere either in the Old Testament or any Jewish literature is the Messiah ever referred to as a bridegroom. It just doesn't happen. So as Jesus is speaking these words out, nobody in that room is sitting there thinking that Jesus is making some sort of statement. He, nobody's thinking he's saying I am the Messiah. That's not where they're going at this particular point. When they hear Jesus' words at this particular moment, all they hear is these words are about joy. <laughs> the disciples are not fasting. The disciples are excited. They are joyful. Why? Because they're in the presence of Jesus. That's why they're, that's why they're not fasting. That's why they're, because they are standing in the presence of the King. Now they don't even know what that really means. Not at this particular moment. So we look back at this verse with hindsight and we, we can read so much significance into it. But at this point, Jesus hasn't even told the disciples who he really is, who he truly is at this particular moment. And yet, this is more than just a story or even a series of little stories that Mark has put together. Because this is part of an unfolding, this is part of a much greater story, because where this story is going is to the cross where Jesus died for your sin and mine. That's what we're heading here. And though Jesus mentions the fact that the bridegroom is going to leave, he is quite cryptic in that, because he never mentions the fact of the horrific, horrible death that he knows already that he is, he's going to have to face. The death that he faced for you and for me to buy our forgiveness, that we might know peace with God. 
And we can stand here on the other side of the cross and we can look back at this particular little verse and this particular little section and we can read so much in it. But listen, nobody who was there at that particular moment, neither the disciples nor the Pharisees nor any of the people could have possibly understood what Jesus meant. Jesus carries on to another story. In fact, to two further stories. And there are, I guess, parables. He runs straight into them. A parable about fabric and one about wineskins. And Jesus tells these two stories for exactly the same reason as he tells the one about the wedding, wedding feast. And that is to answer that same question. Why are your disciples not fasting, Jesus? So we should be beginning to build a picture here. Put these three little stories together. Something should be forming in our mind as we, as we think them through. And just like the wedding illustration, it is so obvious. No one, at least in those days, no one would dream of taking a bit of new fabric and putting it onto some old and tatty clothes. Nor would they think of taking some new wine and putting it into an old and damaged wineskin. It just wouldn't do it. It would be absolutely craziness. So therefore, why would Jesus' disciples want to try and copy the Pharisees? Why would they want to try and emulate John's disciples? The answer? They wouldn't. It'd be like taking a piece of old cloth and putting it onto some a piece of new cloth and putting it onto some old clothes or some new wine and into a into an old tatty wineskin. You just wouldn't do it. And Jesus is challenging the way people are thinking. He's, he's trying to say something new here. Something is happening. Something is, is changing in this. I don't believe he's necessarily condemning John's disciples. After all, what John's disciples are doing, they're calling people to repent. They're calling people to prepare for the coming of a new kingdom. A new kingdom that has now come in, in Jesus Christ. And what they're doing was quite acceptable at that particular moment. However, that moment was coming to an end. Jesus himself says at the end of chapter 1 when he speaks to the leper, he tells him to go and do everything according to the law of Moses. So Jesus he's not against the Old Testament stuff. He's not trying to say that doesn't matter anymore. He says something, something new is happening here. Something different is beginning to go on. Something new is being unlocked through Jesus Christ. But what Jesus is doing, he is challenging a way of thinking he is rejecting, um, a, a way of religion of man-made rules and regulations that go and distort everything that God is talking about, that distort God's perfectly good laws. You see, the religious Jews, they were so religious, but they had become so hard and so rigid that they were like old wineskins. And Jesus says, he says, the new wine of the gospel can never be contained in a wineskin like that. It's just going to burst. The gospel cannot be contained in a container like that. 
It's, it's just, there's just no way it can be boxed in in that particular way because the life that Jesus brings is a life of joy, a life that is true life, a life of freedom, a life of fellowship with him. And there is a joyful realization here that God's kingdom has come, that this is the day of salvation, that religion is dead, that it does not work anymore. And Jesus would say that we need to choose life, real life, life that only can be found in Jesus, not religion. We need to choose Jesus. But not only must we choose life, not religion, we must also live biblically, not religiously. And that's what the next story sort of flows into. As you've probably gathered, or at least I hope you've gathered already, that the controversy is just building. Things are going crazy for Jesus at this moment. That he seems to be, without even trying, repeatedly annoying and offending the religious people. With no effort. Everything he does, they're watching. Every way he turns, they're looking at him. So the disciples, they're walking through the field, quite happy. They pick a little bit of corn. They rub it between their fingers. They take a little bit to eat. And all hell breaks loose. They have just done something that is just unforgivable according to the Pharisees. And it inevitably provokes a response. Now you see, what they are doing, what the disciples are doing is not necessarily wrong. It's not contrary to the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 it says, what they're doing is absolutely permissible. It's quite acceptable. The problem is the day of the week. So they're walking through on the Sabbath. Now the religious people, the Pharisees, they have got a big rule book. And in their big rule book, it says that you should not work on the Sabbath. So the disciples are walking through the field, taking some corn, rubbing it like that. That's reaping. It's work. And they have, they have just... They've just done one of those, those acts of work, those 39 acts of work that has been forbidden on the Sabbath by the Pharisees. And they're in trouble. Religious people are very good at taking something that God has given for our good and twisting it turning it into a man-made religion and a burden. So we take the example that we have here of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was given for our good. It was given for the protection, particularly of the vulnerable people within society. So you can imagine, back in those days, they worked long hours. It was normal to work six days a week, often all, nearly all the way through a full day. So they're sitting, they're hoping, they're waiting for when? For the seventh day, for the Sabbath. Why? Because it's a day off. A day of rest, a day to relax, a day to spend time with family, a day to worship God. But the Pharisees had taken this and they were using it as something to beat the people over the head with. And what had started off as a blessing had now become a burden. It had become 
bondage and slavery. And Jesus is again then having to defend himself. And this time he turns to the scriptures and he says to the Pharisees, I like this little bit, he says to the Pharisees, he says, have you not read about David? Now, there's a bit of sarcasm in there, in my mind. Of course they have. These guys know their scriptures like nobody else knows them. Most of them have memorized them off since they were young boys. They, of course they know what the scriptures are all about. But Jesus says they don't really get them. They don't really understand them. Now these two stories, they're a little bit different. See, the story of how the disciples are walking through the field and plucking the corn... It's slightly different because when David does what he does, he goes into the temple. Him and his men, they go in, they get some of the bread, the bread that should only be eaten by the priests, and they are starving, and they take some of the bread, David gives it to his men. And there's no mention of what day of the week that took place on. Probably wasn't the Sabbath. But what links both of these two stories is that here are two groups of godly men who do something that is forbidden. However, God does not condemn David or his men for their actions. He doesn't. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that here are these Pharisees and they have, they think they know better than God does. They have a stricter interpretation of the law than even God himself has. Listen, God's the guy who wrote it. He's the one who actually created everything. And the Pharisees, the religious people, they think they can tell God a few things. Their interpretation of scripture goes way further than God ever meant it to be. And they show their ignorance of it. See, God doesn't just love his law. He loves people. He loves you. And we must be so careful. The letter of the law must always be understood in the light of a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who wants your best. And he does. Not your best. He loves you. And the goal of the law was always to reveal. It was always to point to. It was in essence to be superseded by the gospel. Jesus is the one who came to fulfill the law. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is controlled. He is the one who makes the law complete. He is the only one who is truly Lord over the Sabbath. Read in Romans chapter 3, it says, But apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To what the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Who? To all who believe. Guys, the gospel this good news that Jesus left the wonder of heaven, came down to this earth, lived a perfect life, but went to the cross and died there in our place for our sin, where we could receive his righteousness as he takes our sin. 
This gospel is liberating. This is true freedom. True freedom that only comes through one person. Through Jesus. It's amazing. And yet... Pharisees and and the religious people like them they think they're Lord of the Sabbath they think they can make up the rules and then get other people and judge other people by them and they're completely wrong because only Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath in fact he's not just Lord of the Sabbath he is Lord of everything over all of creation It's so easy for Christians to fall into exactly the same trap as the Pharisees did. We think we're exempt, of course. But it's so easy for so many of us to fall into exactly the same trap as the Pharisees. And so often we think if we could just do a little bit better, you know what I mean? If we, if we could just read our Bibles a little bit more. In fact, if we could do you know those things, we read the Bible through. In, and again, don't get me wrong, I'm not against you doing that, okay? It's really good to spend time in God's Word, but we think if we can read through our Bibles in a year. Wouldn't God think we are amazing? That's God tick a few boxes for Him, isn't it? He's, he's going to love us after that. Or if we could pray, or maybe we could attend maybe five prayer meetings in a row. Wow. God's got to love that, hasn't he? He's got to be impressed if we can, if we can, and we can create our own little list. And so often, that's the way we we do it, and that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not our good works that will ever save us. It's God's grace. It's His work of Jesus on the cross alone that will save you. It is by faith in Him. You can try as hard as you want. You're not going to make it, guys. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. But listen, there is a way through Jesus Christ where you can know and have peace and have true freedom with God. Are all rules then wrong? We need to redress things slightly. One of the best known rules, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Listen, God gives us rules for our good, for our blessing. So when it says we should not kill, we should not steal, it's sort of good for us, it's good for you guys, it's good for society as a whole. It's not a bad thing, okay? Also, in our home, we have a few rules of our own. So ever since Rosie was a, was a baby, we've always had a little rule that we've never, ever allowed her to play in the middle of the M6. Call me overprotective dad if you want to. It's just a rule we have. Just one of those things. Also, we, we generally tend to say grace before meals. We just spend time, particularly in our evening meal, we will just pray and give thanks for the food that God has given to us. It's just a, it's a good thing to do, a little rule that we have. For some reason, I don't often say grace before um, I have a sandwich at work, and I've called me out once. So we were a couple of years back. We were over, me and my brother over in Minneapolis, um, at a John Piper's conference, quite a number of years back now. And we just finished halfway through the day. We thought we'd go out for a sandwich. We just met an American pastor over there, and he came out with us. Now I'm just about to take a bite out of my sandwich, and he stops me and he says, 
to, to, I don't know what to do in your country, but in our country, we like to give thanks for our food. Didn't quite know how to respond to that one. In, in many ways, I agree with everything that he said, except I couldn't help but think, would God really have struck me down if I'd taken a bite of that sandwich on American soil without praying? See, with every rule, there's a line that we can cross. And rules can so easily become religion. And we can become arrogant. And so easy for us to criticise the Pharisees. We can laugh at their pernickety little rules. We can, we can make fun of them. It's, but how different are we? Really, guys, how different are you? Our natural default position is towards lists. It's towards rules. It's wanting people to conform to our way of thinking, to our standards. We, we, we just like people to do what we're doing. It's somewhat natural, I guess. But so quickly it can become religion. In fact, particularly in perhaps like the more modern churches, whatever that means, we can even become religious about not being religious. What I'm saying? Creeps in so subtly. It creeps in so easily. And we just develop habits and things that are not necessarily even wrong, but with time it can become that attitude that says, I've always done it this way. Right, I've done it this way for you know. It's, even after a few months, we can we can get there. Listen, that phrase kills churches. It distorts our view of God. We need to be too careful. The truth is, we believe that could never ever happen to us. After all, we're called freedom, aren't we? You know, it's in the name. Surely a church called freedom could never stray from that. Listen, history proves the opposite. We need to fight for freedom. We need to fight to make sure that we don't go down that route. We need to fight for joy. We need to fight to know God by His Spirit coming, just setting us free every moment we get together. I guess there's only one safe question that we should be asking ourselves, and that is this. What does the Bible have to say? What's God's Word saying? We need to be listening to the Holy Spirit. We need to be in God's Word. We need to be not asking, what what do I think? Or, 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 you know, what's my opinion? No, it's what has God's Word got to say? What is God saying on this matter? We need to fight for that. We need to stand firm in his word. We need to be filled by his spirit. And as I finish, I would would just pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon each one of us now, including myself, and just begin to expose any little religious attitudes that we carry so easily. But by his spirit, we would see them and that we would repent of them. You know, guys, it's just as important to repent of religion 
as it is to repent of sin. We need it. We need to come with that sort of attitude in our hearts. We need to turn to God to live by His Spirit. Jesus Christ give His life that we might know true freedom in Him. Let us never live in any other way than for Him.